walked into a bar. An argument ensued about who the goats are. The seed was a thought that would turn into a pod. Now fans worldwide say, not a bad job, the ad hoc cab squad who chronicles the vanguard of hip hop at large. Rap taste slacked off, no need to be mad, dog. Look no further, it's the dad bod. Rap, pop, pop. Podcasting live from San Jose, California, it is the Dad Bod Rap Pod. I am one third of your host, Damone Carter, a.k.a. Dem One. I'm actually your only host for this week. Just doing a little funky introduction before we get into this week's episode. If you tapped in last week, and I don't know why you wouldn't have, you would have heard us talk about the Son of the City book talk that we had with Goat A&R Dante Ross at Amoeba Records Berkeley a couple Saturdays ago. Super dope event. He's been touring this around the nation. He did this event with Just Blaze and Be Real and Open Mike Eagle in different locations. And he asked us to be a part of his Bay Area tour stop. Super grateful for that. Shout out to Ray at Amoeba Records Berkeley one more time. Really dope setup. Um, with all the audio and kind of staging in the back of the store. I brought along our Zoom 6 audio recorder just to see if we could get some cool audio. You kind of never know how it's going to go with the live event. That's why I didn't mention it last week. But when I went back and listened, we got a great chunk of the conversation and pretty good sound quality. So we're going to run it this week. You're about to hear... About two thirds of our conversation with Dante Ross. If you want to hear the last part, you have to join our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash dadbodratpod, where you can hear Dante answer the question, who are his top five white rappers, which is pretty interesting because he signed a bunch um, and he gave a really cool response to that question. And he, he talked about a couple other things. Also on the Patreon, you'll be able to hear Dell, the funky homo sapien, who was also present for the conversation, do a live rendition part of the song Boo Boo Heads. Um, so once again, that's Dad Bod Rap Pod on Patreon, patreon.com slash Dad Bod Rap Pod. But let's get into this part of the interview. Dante starts the interview by talking about the influence that his father had on his life and work. Dante's dad was a San Francisco-based writer and activist. Unfortunately, the sound is a little ragged on that question, but we'll pick it up when Nate asked Dante about the voice in which this book was written. Here it is, our conversation with Dante Ross, Dead Bod. Rap pod. Your voice specifically. Um, I wanted it to be in my voice. Like Charles Bukowski is one of my favorite writers. So oh, he, okay. he, to me, he's like, um, he's a writer for people who don't like writers, kind of. 
like you know, you don't you, you, like it's just so easy to read. And I wanted it to be conversational the way Bukowski books are. And and I had um I had an editor and he tried to do some rewriting. Um, his name was Jim Ruland and he fucking sucked. <laughs> and and he tried to change Jim Ruland. He wrote a bunch of punk rock books. He's like a good writer, but not a good writer for me. Um, and he he kind of did a an edit rewrite on a chapter, and he changed the title of my book to Beat Boss, which fucking sucked too. Beat Boss? Yeah, it was fucking so whack, right? Um, and I, I just fired him. I unceremoniously kicked him to the curb, and I was like, look, my grammar's not great. I barely went to high school, but I'm going to fucking slug it out and make it sound the way that I talk. And, and part of the way to do that is read it back to yourself out loud and maybe record yourself and make sure you're not being too writerly. Because um, I think, you know, that just it loses flavor, right? You lose the Bukowski of it, or like Greg Tate, like was another writer I loved. Um, and I wanted it to have my voice. And I think it does. It does. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> it's dysfunctional sounding. <laughs> Audiobook? Done. It's out. It's on Audible. It's living on Audible right now. Um, I did it. I recorded it myself. If you ever want to... Um, if you ever want to hate your voice, go record an audiobook. Because you'll be like, God, I sound like such a fucking turd. Um, but, but I did it, and it was actually cool. And I actually have a, I have a gig to read a couple other books, because the lady who produced it was impressed by how fast I did it. And I did it in three days. Good Night Moon by Dante Ross. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> go the fuck to sleep. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Go the, well, Samuel Jackson did that, so I'm not going to get that good. But yeah, you know, so I got a couple of things she wants me to read, which would be kind of cool. I'll make a little money, and, oh, wow. and it could be cool. Yeah, it's fucking cool. Did you get any singing? Nah. <laughs> and you're lucky for that. You guys want to ask me some things? Uh, since we're lucky enough to have Dell here as well, can you guys talk a little bit about uh, your collaboration and how you work together on No Need for Alarm? That's uh, one of our favorite albums and something that Turn we grew up on. this year. I mean, I'll give that to Dell. I think Dell should probably talk about that, not me. Man, shit, I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> with, with no need for alarm, basically, that was like, I just was like, I wanted to express myself in a harder way. You know what I'm saying? You didn't want to be Ice Cube's guy anymore. Right, you know what I'm saying? I wanted to kind of get from off from under the the the... the the, the wing, so to speak, you know what I'm saying? I, I mean, knew, I, I, I always... Knew, go ahead, yeah, 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 go I ahead. I always felt that you wanted to do music that was more like the rest of Hyro. Ba yeah, basically, yeah, 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 basically. Because we all was a team, we all worked similarly, you know what I'm saying? So I felt like some of that flavor was not being paid attention to on the first album. Not saying I didn't like the first album, but it was more to come. So I think... It's just naturally, that that's just a natural progression, you know what I'm saying? No, no Need for Alarm was more you. It was more personal to me. Definitely, definitely. When I, when I think about the first album, I feel like a 1-2, a 1-2 was kind of like, that was maybe the closest right. to, to you. And then you put out Burnt, and that was like a high-row record. Mm -hmm. and, and then Eye Examination. Right, Yeah, and right, Eye Examination right. was the preview to what was to come, right? Yeah, basically, yeah, that was like... Uh, 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 what is that? A rebel without a pause. Yeah. That was like my rebel yeah, yeah. without a pause. You know. Yeah, what you that? had found yourself. Mm -hmm. And I remember that record was. Um, I mean, 
you know, the sample on it, I can't believe we never got tagged for that thing. What, uh, uh, what, uh, Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I freaked it so hard. I didn't say that. Rewind. Um, I freaked it though. Like I, I felt like if they heard it, they couldn't be mad at me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, okay, that was tight though. You know. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. You know. You know. One thing when it, when, when I got that album, um, and and um, I'm just gonna be very candid. It didn't have any choruses really. It was just all verses, all raps, and and it was incredible. But I didn't know how the hell I was gonna. You know, how am I gonna present this to the world? And, and I went back to Dell and Domino. I was like, hey, man, like, this is really good, but how can we make choruses? And to your credit, Dell, you went back and you fucking fixed the whole record in two weeks and came to New York and mixed the thing. I, it was like, it's the, um, maybe it was like the coolest A&R experience because when you tell somebody, like, maybe you got to fix this, you know, you're fucking with someone's art and they're very likely to tell you to fuck yourself. <laughs> And, um, and, and, you know, they got to live with that art, but I guess we had a good enough relationship that you trusted me and Dom and you, you went and made this record, um, more palatable. If, if, if I guess that's the word more palatable than that, than it was prior, um, while keeping all the incredible rapping intact. Um, and I thought, you know, when the record came out, I thought it was great. I did not think it was gonna have the lasting impact it had. Um, you yeah, can, I don't think none of us did though. Like I, I, I didn't honestly. I didn't know what it was gonna be like. I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. So fuck it. You know I'm, what I'm saying? I mean, you were ready to go down in flames. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was, um, it was really well received. And and in in time, the stature of that record has grown. And and usually records diminish. They don't grow in status or stature. And I think it was one of the first and a handful of records with the Souls and Freestyle Fellowship and a few others that really showed that the West Coast wasn't only making gangster rap. That dudes were really lyrical and could really rap. And, and to this day, the rapping on that record is some of the best rapping like of that time period ever done. I, and I remember this, that Busta Rhymes was like, yo, yo, your man's mad nice. <laughs> 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 um, South to Buster, though, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he used to come to New York and like live in my house. Oh, okay, yeah. Like he would just like Dell's in New York. I had I had a house and my girlfriend had a house. Mm -hmm. I'd stay at her house and I'd just give Dell the keys and he'd just be in my house for, you know, whatever, doing whatever. It was a fun time period and I yeah, got to come out here a lot because um, my dad lived here, so I would come out here and work on these records with Dell and stuff and I'd, I'd hang out and then I get to go back to see my dad, which was really cool. And, and I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that part of the reason I wanted to sign a group from the Bay Area so I could come out for free and see my dad more. And, and, and go to Groove Merchant, which, which I would clean out. Um, you know, I went through the entire 45 section of Groove Merchant and I think I'm the first person to have done it. Um, I took like a, a weekend and did the whole thing. And I, that's how I met Domino. I met Domino at Groove Merchant. He lived in the back of Groove Merchant, had a studio there. Mike, who owned it, Mike and Jody, introduced me to Dom, and he played me a beat, and I just took up the same exact beat record for Grand Poobah, and I played it for him, and he lost his mind. <laughs> and I was like, I see you. Like, and we went on crazy record shopping sprees. I signed Dell, and I had the honor of introducing Dell 
to the high road. I'm Domino to the high road guys. And that's how it all kind of came to be. And here, you know, 30, how many years later? 30 plus. 30 plus. That, that's, see, they say 30 plus and they don't want to tell you how long it really is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, 30 plus years later, I still talk to all the high road guys and Dom and Dell. And, um, you know, that's like one thing when, in making records and, and doing what I did. Like, an A&R guy, you're an easy target. Um, you're basically the asshole at the record company. Um, but but somehow I always avoided that. Um, and I think it's because I always put the artist and their art first, not my job. You know, and, and I think if um, if you do A&R, that's the only way to do it. I think, though, you as a part of the culture, too, though, seriously. So, like, of course. that had a lot to do with it. You know what I'm saying? I think that's why I got along with you so well. Because I respect that you actually was part of the culture. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I was like... I don't know how you could do the job and not be part of the culture. I could see it now, but back then I didn't, there was, you know, I don't understand how you could. You know, being a mountain climber with the electric guitar is weird. <laughs> which, which is literally our only reference point for being an A&R. Uh, can you talk about, like, what a good A&R actually does? You try and present your, the artists you signed and believe in. You want to present their music to the masses in as undiluted and tangible a way as possible. So you um, have to pick your battles. You have to um, make sure you don't um, overstep your boundaries. Sometimes you do your job by being transparent, and other times you have to um, kind of be more involved. There's no line where that begins and ends or rule to it. And basically, you have to champion your artists, and, and you want their art to be presented how they want it to be presented because you're not the artist, right? And I've seen people become too involved. And I just remember this one time I was in the studio with, with Cypress Hill. I was just hanging out. And their A&R guy was a good dude, this dude Kurt Woodley, but he was like, yeah, maybe if you do this, and you should do that, and you should do this. And Muggs was like, yo, that's a good idea for your record. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yo, I hope no one ever says that to me. You know? And, and I, I had one time when I was, um, I, you know, like, look, I learned a lot from the artists I work with. And I learned a lot from, I learned from Dell, um, you know, from, from Buster, I really learned a lot from the brand Nubian, so that's where I learned a lot. Um, and I, I had this time when we were making Wake Up, and um, I had done a version of it first, and they did a version of it. And I walked in the studio, and they were doing a new version of the song that I had produced, and I was pissed off. <laughs> and me and Jamar got in an argument, and um, I was like, whatever, do whatever the fuck you want, blah, 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 and I left. That version is the one that everyone knows, right? right? So he was right, and I learned that you have to allow the artist to be right or wrong that day. And, and he had told me um, recently that the reason he did that is because that song is, it's all about um, mathematics, and it's got a lot of 5% nation-coded language in it. And he didn't think that, two things he said, he didn't think that the beat fitted because it was too happy, right? And, and he's right. And secondly, he said he didn't think that a white person should make that beat. And I was like, you know, you were fucking right. <laughs> You're 100% right. You know, like, that's, yes. And, and I didn't realize that was a reasoning that he only told me this recently. And I thought that that was um, a learning experience for me. And um, their record was the right one. And if I had been an asshole, I might have fucked up a classic song. Right? So I learned sometimes you got to, like, you got to um, get out the fucking way. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you... Sometimes you get handed one you can't get out of the way of, and it's just, it doesn't go right. It doesn't always go your way. 
you know. Um, Dante, speaking of crews that you've worked with, um, I, I, we'd be remiss not to bring up uh, De La Soul and your extensive work with them. And I just want to give you a second to talk about um, Trugoy and his importance, yeah. as yeah. well as um, sure. you know your friendship and all that. Um, he was um, he was really funny. When I first met De La, I couldn't believe they were from Long Island because they were super cool. And to me, Long Island was like, that was like another planet from Manhattan. Like, I was like, Long Island, people can't be cool there. That's where like Bon Jovi lives or some shit. And, um, and they were so cool. And, and Dave was, um, he, he, so he's really sarcastic. And he didn't say a lot. He wasn't like super verbose. But like when he came with the joke, it was always like super good. Like, he was really funny, and he was our barber back then. So he used to cut all our hair, and he did all the crazy designs. And this is why they call me a scrub, because I always was like, yo, I, wanna f I need another haircut. Give me a haircut. I need a haircut for, like, six months a year. He'd edge me up, but he got sick of me asking for a fucking haircut. He was like, go to the fucking barber. Like, what am I? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a rapper. I'm not your barber. And... Uh, that's why on the record, they go, and you're not getting a haircut either, because I kept bothering him to get a haircut. But he was a great dude and, and a, a huge loss. You know, um, I went to that, I went to the, the release of the record in New York, and um, I went because of Domino. Because Domino, I seen him on Sunday, and he called me on Monday. He said, I'm going to go to New York. What are you doing? I said, I ain't going. And then I got off the phone, and my girl's like, why are you looking like that? I was like, because I might want to go to New York for this day of last She said, go. Be stupid. You're going to... So I went and um, a spiritual experience, you know, to uh, and bittersweet because their music is finally going to be on streaming and generations of people who never got to know their music will now get to know it. But he's not there to, to be part of it, you know, and there was there was a bittersweet thing to it, man. You know, De La were they're great. dudes. I mean, look, man, Dell has been on tour with them a lot with gorillas and and like those guys are like, I mean, they're kind of like the big brothers to Hyro as well. It's. So I've um, always been, like, really cool to, you know, be around him. And I'll say, when we made that first record, um, I'm thankful that I got to be in the room when them and Paul made the magic. I didn't have a whole lot to do with it, um, except I had good jokes, and I lent past my Get Out My Life Woman record, and that's the only thing I really did on that. So. <laughs> I think Dave had a lot to do with the, with the reformatting, too, with Paul. He did. Yeah, because I was talking to him about it on the road. And I, I know, like, they was meticulous at getting it to sound right. Yeah, and, like, exactly. You know the replays and the samples they had to redo. And and um, Dave, to me, was, like, very egoless, except when he got on the microphone. And then he flexed his shit. Right. And, like, when I think of Dave, I think of the song um, Stakes is High. Mm -hmm. His verse on that, I mean, that's, like, social commentary on where the world stood right then. It's, like, very... Um, poignant today you know he he um he was like a man of few words and when he spoke it, it carried a lot of weight so i mean i guess that's that's my thoughts on dave oh and his father it was his record that is that is um plug tuning oh, wow. it's his father's record it's a haitian his father's haitian right, right. and his father like 50s and 60s music and he brought that it's written on the wall record that's his record and he's the one who brought that sample to the party that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one knows that. <laughs> but now everyone knows it. Um, I got one for you, Dante. Uh, uh, about uh, Dave, too. I think he was the oldest, too, right? Yeah, he was. He was. No, Paul's the oldest. Oh, I mean, like, aside from yeah. Paul. You feel I mean, it? to me, I always kind of considered, like, Paul in the group. I can't explain it, because he was when, when you met them, they were, like, 
four-headed monster or something was bugged out. So o over the last couple of days, I was able to read the entire book, and this oh, is something shoot. that struck me. Um, you're not a nerd. Your artists that you work with are not nerds, but the music that you signed and you brought forth to the world is kind of this foundational elements for all of the hip-hop nerds. Yes. How do you feel about that? Um, uh, you know, it's a weird one. It's a weird one. I, you know, and, and I think that um, I wouldn't say Buster's not nerd-friendly. Nerd um, yeah, it's a weird one. You know, hip-hop nerds, um, I love them and I hate them. <laughs> so sometimes they're really cool like you guys, and sometimes they're really obnoxious, like and they want to ask you really personal questions about, like, what, what was Doom like in, what, you know, what color socks did he have on in 1992, and, and shit like that. And you're like, yo, bro, my man's dead. Like, you know, leave me alone. Like the hyper-personal questions. Um, sometimes come from hip-hop nerds, they get excited. But, but I think um, I was a music nerd, so I'm a music nerd my whole life. I grew up studying the backs of records like all of us do, and I knew all the guys' names on liner notes, and I always wanted to know um, what Seymour Stein did and what Jerry Wexler did and what, you know, all these guys, Steve Cropper, what does is, what is Creed Taylor really do? What does Creed Taylor look like? Is he black? Is he white? Like, I wanted to know all this shit, so... Um, I guess I'm part of the hip hop nerd tribe, and I can play hip hop trivia with the best of them. So that would <laughs> that would give me a, a card. I'm just, um, you know, I was like a kid who was really into sports when he was young, um, and so I was outside a lot, and I was participating in sports. So that is the only thing that stopped me from being a nerd. And I really played a lot of sports as a kid because it was the only way you didn't get beat up where I grew up. <laughs> so if you could play sports and were good, like people might give you a pass. And if you were like just a regular guy who didn't do shit, you, you might get your sneakers taken. So. Jeez. You, in the book, you talk a lot about uh, going to the Latin Quarter yeah. and that whole era to find new music, which was like legit dangerous. Very. Uh, what, what made you go? Is that young recklessness? Is it knowing that you were going to get the scoop on new shit? Like, um, what, what made you go out there? So, it felt important, right? And and people forget this, that there's this nether time in hip-hop, this one slice of time where it's a uh, run DMC's like, there's two times this happened. There's Grandmaster Flash and everyone's dressed like a broke Rick James. And shit's like, it's... You know, you just, you can't go outside dressed like the dudes who you're watching. Do you, do you can, have photos like that? No. You couldn't, no one ever dressed like that except on stage. So, then Run DMC comes out and they demystify it. But there, and, but in that time period, right before Run DMC, shit got a little funny. It was real musical. Rap could have died. And then Run DMC and the Beastie Boys ascend LL. But then there's a moment right after that when raps, where's it going to go? And then the golden era starts, right? People start sampling records. To me, the first record is always Eric Beers and Rakim, like Eric Beers present. To me, that's, that's the first note in the golden era for me. No. That's old. That, to me, that's old. And, and here's one of the differences. They were using a sampler on Eric B. They're scratching records in on my Adidas. So that's the difference. And they're not using drum machine sounds. They're using drum samples. So this is when it starts. I went to the Latin Quarter because I wanted to see where it was going, what was happening next. I didn't want to be old school. Right, I love the old school dudes like Run. You know, Jam Master J is my man, but I wasn't those dudes. I was younger, and I wanted to. I'm only a year younger than Jay, which is crazy because he seemed ten years older than me. But I wanted to 
do the shit my peers were checking out. So I started going to Latin Quarters, and I was lucky enough. There was a couple other clubs we used to go to, Red Parrot. Um, there, was a, there was Union Square, which was super hyper-dangerous. But I was lucky enough that I always knew the DJ. So whether it was Clark Kent or Red Alert, I could hang out in the DJ booth, and I had nothing to rob. <laughs> so I had no gold chain, no watch, no earrings, nothing. I had a swatch and a bucket hat. So you could rob me for my bucket hat if you needed to, but you know that was that was about it. So that was gave me a pass too, and because of where I grew up, I always kind of know how to move, you know. And I know if shit's jumping off on that side of the room, stay on this side of the room, right? Shit like that. So I'm always really good at my spidey sense. Always kind of gets me away from danger. And I've seen like a lot of crazy shit to quarters, but I also knew I had to be there because. It felt like Birdland, e. right? This was the Fillmore East of rap. This is where it was all going down, where music was happening that you knew was going to be important. And there was a wide spectrum of talent, from Boogie Down Productions and Kid and Play, right? And everything in between, Salt and Pepper to Just Ice. But there's all this stuff, you know, and all these guys get record deals. They all are successful. If you look at that class of guys who played at the Latin Quarters, I mean, it's Public Enemy, BDP, Salt and Pepper, Kid and Play, Rakim, Stetsasonic. I mean, it's it's everyone. It's all the all the you know all the heavy hitters, kind of, and and then some guys who didn't quite get as successful but were equally seminal. So for me, I knew I was in the middle of something important, and I would say that this is where I became a real A and R guy because I would start taking bets on my head who was going to hit. It's like Kid and Play. They got a really good live show. They're gonna be pop. They're gonna be like a pop rap star. Salt and Pepper. Like they're gonna be bigger than I'll Take Your Man. Like look at them, right? And I could see where it was gonna go. And because of that, I was working for Russell Simmons. I would hang out with Russell. Um, don't hold it against me. Um, it was a long time ago. Um, Andre Harrell, rest in peace. Um, a couple other heavy hitters. Nelson George, the writer. And they would ask me what was popping. So I'm like. If these guys are asking me what's popping, I must know what's popping. So this is how I knew I could be an A&R person, and I became an A&R guy. You did pretty well in, I that, did okay. in that regard. What's the Latin quarter of today? SoundCloud? Uh, that's, wow, yeah, maybe. Well, equally not, as dangerous. Not SoundCloud. It's, it's equally as dangerous to your intellect. It definitely will make you dumb as fuck. Um, rap caviar? It's a playlist, okay. right? Okay. I mean, you know, we live in this world that... Um, you don't have to experience culture firsthand anymore, right? Everything is is visceral, right? We can all, you know, we can get on. Everything's a click away, too, which is good and bad. So you don't have to experience anything, but then you got your dude who's a hedge fund guy telling you what's lit, right? So, you know, that's the downside. But another upside of it is the kid who um, listens to rap caviar, he might just go click on um, Turnstile or some other cool-ass punk rock shit, and his whole mind might get flipped by finding a whole different kind of music because he doesn't have to go and see Turnstile or track down their record. He just got to click away. So there's good, good in, you know, pluses and minuses to it. I also think it's, it's made kids genre agnostic, um, and I think that there's a lot of cool... The cool part of rap music today lives in the genre agnostic section of the world, um, you know, like the, the interesting stuff. And, and then there's... You know, guys like mumble rap dudes, little little tattoo face or whatever it is, and you know, you just got it. You just got to deal with it. Um, Dante, one of my um, we're going over your projects, and uh, one of my favorite things you did is uh, obviously your time with Brand Nubian. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, you talk about it in the book, and I wouldn't say you have 
any sort of animus, but it seems like you have some reservations towards some of how some of the things unfolded. Yeah. Um, can you just sort of reflect on that a little bit and just your time with those guys? Yeah, it was like it ended too soon, you know? Um, Puba was um, always wanted to be Grand Puba, right? And he was in this group, and the chatter started. You know, the sideline dudes, uh, yo, you should be a solo. Yo, you should go solo. You know, and it started happening. And in the middle of doing the first record, he starts doing solo songs. So I'm like, man, this could go really shitty. And, you know, we finished the record, and it's off to a slow start. And they're a band, and it starts to connect. And all of a sudden, he doesn't really want to be in a band with the other guys. And, um, you know, I, I had a couple conversations. I was like, you know, you could do your solo record, and I got you. Yeah, but I don't want to... And he decided to go solo. And I think, though they both had success post-Brand Nubian, as a group, they were better mm -hmm. to me. And we never got to make that second record that probably would have been, I think it would have been a real big record. I think it was, you know how Tribe's first record's not their biggest record? I think Brand Nubian had that ascent in them. And if you take In God We Trust and Real to Real and put them together and take the 12 <laughs> best songs, you have... A fantastic, you have one of the best records ever made. Yeah. But, you know, it, we never, it never was meant to be. And some things, you know, like, some things are not meant to be. I've seen a lot of bands break up, whether it was Third Base, uh, Brand Nubian, and then I've seen only a few groups be able to navigate it. I think about the Beastie Boys, and, and I think about De La. Mm -hmm. And I think the key to it is giving each other space to be who you are, mm -hmm. right? And when you don't do that, it's always going to go bad. That's super interesting about the Grand Pooba thing. I'm going to make a playlist when I get home. Um, you know, I never thought about it before <laughs> just now. I was like, that was definitely me freestyling, but I'm going to do that too. And we have to compare our playlist. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in your illustrious A&R career, which is still ongoing, who's your biggest one that got away? Tribe Called Quest. Mm. Yeah, that was the first one. That's the one that breaks, breaks your heart. The one that gets away first always breaks your heart. Um, and, and it was always like, and I, and I, you know, so I'm such a fan of Tribe Called Quest. They're like, they're probably my favorite rap group ever. Um, Public Enemy or Tribe Called Quest. So not being able to be part of that, like there was like a time period when like Benita Applebaum came out, the remix, you'd hear it over, I'd be like, oh, why'd she do that to me? You know, it was like, it was like really heartbreaking. I stayed friends with those guys um, d despite it. And I, I would always hit them with the, but Jive got half your publishing. <laughs> But, you know, it was the right decision for them because Electra probably would have brought that home the way Jive did. Um, they got a platinum record on the second one, and, and that's the one hurt. The other one I got away early on that, that hurt was uh, D.O.C. Um, oh, and, and we had, Tom, they brought it to Tommy Boy. I had met Dre. I, bought, I met Dre um, and Cube at Skateland in L.A. with Queen Latifah, which is bizarre because that's like a super blood club. Why they were there, I don't know, but I got their numbers. And then Dre, Jerry Heller, and Michelle A and Easy came to me with the DOC. And I had the tape, which was the album. It was the done album, mixed. It had a song called Bridget they didn't put on it, which is, which you're rap nerds, you know it probably. It's like a famous song. It's despicable. But, but, um, Tom Silverman wouldn't pay $175,000 for it. It was more, he told me, that's more than I, that's $100,000 more than I ever paid to sign anyone. And we let it go. We didn't sign it. And I, I always, I knew that record would be huge. Funky was on it. And it, you know, 
the rest is history. So those two, and then since then I've lost so many bands I could give a fuck. <laughs> now you're like, get out of here, I lost it, good. You know, and also now there's no secrets. So back then you had to go meet the guy, know the guy, get the tape, know it was good. Wow. You know, now it's like, so everyone has research. It's and all it's, numbers driven. Wow. So there's no secret. If anyone starts to level up numbers wise, there's millions of dollars on the table right away. Right away. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's fucked up. Uh, you've had a bunch of different label situations. <laughs> what was the coolest label you worked on? And also talk about Tommy Boy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So Electra was the coolest one because they gave me enough rope to hang myself. Yeah. And I've always been at my best and been accomplished the most when I get a, a enough rope to hang myself because I'm not going to hang myself. Um, Tommy Boy was not the worst place I worked. So um, actually, Tommy Boy was uh, invaluable. I learned a lot. I learned um, Monica Lynch was like an incredible mentor to me. She taught me branding, um, understanding label identity, how to accentuate what's there when you're telling the story. Um, she's a great marketing person who does it in a way that's not offensive. Um, and I learned a lot from Monica Lynch. And I learned a lot from Tom. I learned not to be cheap. <laughs> um, because if Tom had kept me there, he would have had Brand Nubian and KMD and Buster and everything else, right? So he missed out on all of that. Um, and, and so it wasn't the worst place I worked. I think the last job I had I worked at, I was the senior vice president of Asylum Records. I'd say that was the worst job I ever had. Um, because the money was great, but I, I, um, I had, I, look, I found this guy, um, Little Dicky. Don't be mad at me about it. So, so, and I signed him, and he, he, you know, not only did I sign him, I actually, I put Fetty Wap on the record. So they wouldn't let me sign Fetty Wap for $80,000. Jesus. So, the distribution deal, we didn't do it. But I stayed friends with his manager, so I got him on the record. So Little Dicky goes big, um, senior vice president, ADA, and they, we're going to we're going to restart Asylum and give you the job. And I'm working with this guy, and they're like, he sucks, he's out of here. He's the president. I'm senior vice president. They bring in a new person. She sucked more. Um, and she wouldn't let me sign Little Nas X. Oof, oof. Um, and a couple of other things. Just, I don't know if you guys know what Tizo Touchdown is, but I think he's amazing. And I went to war trying to get him signed. And I was like, just fucking fire me. And she fired me. <laughs> so, because um, I was just like so adamant about signing him because it was a cheap deal and I thought he was a super duper talent and I think he's going to be a huge star. Do you feel like in your latter stages, ageism comes into play? One million percent. Because it's so easy to, to point to that, right? You know, it's so like, uh, I mean, how do you defend yourself when it was like, you're a 50-year-old white guy? Yeah, yeah I am. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, I am, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it is, it makes you an easy target and I believe that ageism is a, a real factor in in. I think the workforce in general, not just in the music industry, but certainly in the music industry. And I've seen people who are way less qualified than me who had like a, a better pair of off-white sneakers get a <laughs> job I probably should have got. And you know, that's just part of it. Like I think, you know, and, and I understand it because rap music is youth m music, right? Like I can, and we talk about like All right, that was our conversation with the legendary Dante Ross. 
Good times had by all. If you want to hear part two of the conversation, you got to be one of the Patreon homies. Patreon.com slash DadBodRapPod. You won't just get part two of this conversation, but you'll also be able to get my playlist series, Dems Gems, Nate's radio show, Fly Sporadic. We do behind the scenes type posts. We take surveys of what everybody's listening to on a semi-weekly basis. It's a good time. It's a cool community, especially as Twitter, rap Twitter is a dying star. Come join us on the Patreon. Uh, other than that, you know, you can still fuck with us on Twitter at dad bod rap pod on IG at dad bod rap pod. Uh, shout out to the homies, Nate and Dave. We are coming back next week with more heat. Dad bod rap pod.